Tonight's cafe is called Climate Solutions, Renewable Energy Storage and Carbon Capture. And I'd, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this evening's Science Cafe, Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society, University of Michigan chapter. I'd also like to thank the National Science Foundation, which has supported our speakers in various ways associated with the museum and tonight's program. So now I'd like to invite Gus up to tell us more about Sigma Xi, and then he will turn things over to Kira. Gus, thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. I am Gus Buchtel, and I'm currently the president of our local chapter of Sigma Xi. So I'm going to just say a couple of words about Sigma Xi, and then we get on to the more important things. So Sigma Xi is the largest multidisciplinary uh, honor society for scientists and engineers. Uh, it was formed in 1886, back when um, Phi Beta Kappa would not induct scientists into the honor society. So the scientists just made their own honor society called Sigma Xi. Um, our chapter was formed in 1903, and so we've been around a long time. We have currently more than a thousand members in the campus at all levels. So the mission of the society is to enhance research, foster integrity in science and engineering, and promote the public understanding of science. And it's the latter mission of promoting the public understanding of science that motivates our chapter to sponsor events like this, tonight's Science Cafe. Other activities of the chapter include judging and awarding prizes at the Southeastern Michigan uh, Science Fair and giving cash award to a science and math teacher of the year whose teaching inspires, stimulates, and challenges students. Thanks for giving me a chance to explain Sigma Xi. Sigma Xi has sponsored two cafes uh, this season, so they've also sponsored one that's coming in May on the future of RNA vaccines. So many, many thanks uh, for the dollars that make the appetizers happen. So yes, uh, thank you very much. Um, my name is Kira Berman, and I am the Assistant Director for Education at the Museum of Nat Natural History, and I organize these science cafes in order to give you an informal chance to hear from and talk with the researchers at the University of Michigan, because I think that that can be transformative for people in their understanding of science and technology. So I want to give you a sense of what's about to happen for those of you who may not have attended a science cafe before. Um, the first thing we'll do is we'll hear from our two speakers. Charles will go first, and then David will go second. Um, and then uh, the next thing after that is we'll let you take a break, order another beverage, and uh, discuss what you heard at your tables. Our speakers will circulate in the room, so you'll get a chance to talk to them as well. And then um, for the last half hour, we'll do a large group discussion, which I will moderate. So that's the format of this evening. Um, let me introduce our speakers. Charles McCrory is Associate Professor in the Department of Chemistry and the Macromolecular Science and Engineering Program at the University of Michigan. Before coming to the University of Michigan, Professor McCrory was a research scientist at the Department of Energy Innovation Hub called the Joint Center for Artificial Photosynthesis, where he worked on evaluating catalyst materials for solar energy storage. 
At the University of Michigan, his group develops new catalysts for storing renewable energy in the form of chemical bonds, like solar fuels. Uh, David Quabby is assistant professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Michigan, where he teaches courses on energy technology and thermodynamics. He is passionate about developing technologies that will enable a low-carbon, cl climate-friendly, and sustainable energy industry. His group designs and studies electrochemical devices for storing electricity, capturing carbon dioxide from the environment, desalinating water, and similar applications. I'm so, so pleased to have these two with us. So I, I don't want to fail to mention that these two gentlemen both have NSF research projects that have funded exhibits that are either at the museum or will soon open. Um, Charles has what we call a pod. It's kind of a, a little room in our People and the Planet uh, exhibition. Um, and you should definitely check that out. It's mostly about batteries. Um, and um, David has a research station in People in the Planet. And then we'll soon have a research highlight station up in our nature lab. So after the cafe, go to the museum and you can play around with the exhibits and learn more. Um, without further ado, I'm going to let Charles start us off. So thanks uh, again for, for inviting me and thanks for listening to me uh, during this, this event. Um, what I wanted to do with my talk is give sort of a, a broad overview of types of renewable energy storage that are used in emerging and what we even need something like uh, uh, renewable energy storage. A lot of people here probably know this, these types of, of graphs or these types of knowledge is, is put up a lot. Uh, looking at atmospheric carbon dioxide and the fact that it's increasing like the blue line suggests and it's been increasing since 1750 all the way to today uh, pretty rapidly since the dawn of the industrial revolution in the in the uh, 19 early 1900s and you can see that it matches very closely with co2 emissions so as co2 emissions go up so does the atmospheric co2 in the atmosphere um, so what we need to do, or one of the ways to mitigate increasing CO2 is to capture it. I'm not going to talk much about that, but Professor Kwabi will. Another way is to decrease our dependence on energy generation sources that generate CO2. So move towards renewables. And that's what the world has been doing. So according to the Department of Energy, U.S. Energy Information Administration, if you project out the growth in different sectors of energy from now until 2040 or 2050, you see that they're projecting renewables will dramatically increase. Renewables, primarily wind and solar energy, will dramatically increase compared to other energy sources over the next 30 years. And if you look at even right now, about 13% of our energy makeup in the United States is in wind and solar energy. So this is awesome. We're getting these new energy sources that don't directly emit CO2, and we're bringing them on. They're coming lower in cost, and they're becoming cost competitive with other things like coal and natural gas. Next slide, please. The problem is that wind and solar energy are intermittent. And what we mean by that is that the sun comes up, the sun goes down. And so if you look, at energy generation from solar energy, this is just two days in August 29th and August 30th, and I think 2021, solar energy, not surprisingly, turns on about 6 a.m. 
and decreases and is completely gone by midnight. And then again on the 30th, it starts about 6 a.m. and decreases at midnight. So it's intermittent. And wind energy is all over the place. Who knows when we're going to get wind or not, right? It depends on the weather. It depends on a lot of different factors. So we can't, it's not like we uh, firing up a coal power plant or a nuclear reactor it doesn't give you constant steady generation of electricity. So we need a way to harness this electricity when it's generated to use it at the times when it's not being generated. Next slide, please. It gets even worse, by the way, if you look at monthly wind is all over the place. If you look at average generation over a month, solar also it, it peaks in the summer when you have more time, more solar sunlight and uh, uh, decreases in the winter when you have less sunlight and less usable hours. So not only does it vary by day to day, it varies by month to month. So we really need long-term storage strategies. We need the ability to store energy during peak production so that we can use it during periods of dark skies and calm winds. So there are lots of different strategies that are used in the United States to store energy. Next slide, please. Probably the biggest storage, grid-scale storage solution that is used in the United States is pumped hydro storage. About 93% of all energy storage currently in the United States is pumped hydro storage. This idea that when you're generating peak electricity, you literally are taking water and pumping it uphill from a lower reservoir to an upper reservoir. When the electricity isn't being generated and you want to re-harness that energy that you stored by pumping the water, you trickle it back down, spins a turbine, generates electricity. Simple idea, it's incredibly efficient, about 80% energy efficient. That means 80% of the electricity you put in to pump the water up the hill, you get back when it trickles back down. It's great if you have lots of fresh water and lots of mountains. Michigan has lots of water, we don't have any mountains here. So you have to construct, or not many mountains, so you have to construct large hills or large elevation changes in order to do this. Places like California, most of pumped hydro storage is in California, they have a fresh water problem. So they can pump water up and downhill. You don't want to pump salt water because you create salt lakes that kill everything around it that have horrible environmental costs. So you need to use fresh water. So you have to have both mountains and fresh water to use this. So where you have that, it works great. Places like Michigan, probably not so much. So we're looking at other ways of storing energy that could be used everywhere. Next slide, please. A great idea, batteries. Um, if you buy a solar panel today and you put it on your roof, the company will probably try to sell you a battery pack, a, a lithium ion or other intercalation battery pack that would store the energy during the generation. And they work, they work pretty well. They're ubiquitous in electronics and automotive energy industry. Everyone who has a cell phone has a lithium ion battery in their phone right now. Um, they work by taking, you know, you have lithium ions. It's called lithium ion batteries because you have lithium ions. They like to reside in what's called a cathode. It's lithium cobalt oxide. That doesn't really matter, but the lithium is sort of stored on that side of the battery and it prefers to be there. It's energetically favorable to be there. You pump in electricity and energy, you force it out of its preferred space into graphite sheets, in between graphite sheets, where it really doesn't want to be. It's really energetically unfavorable to be there. So you're forcing it, you're using energy to force it into a place it doesn't want to be 
That's the storage part. You can release that energy back by letting the lithium get out of that graphite and go back to the lithium cobalt oxide cathode. It's about 90% energy efficient. So pumping water uphill is about 80% efficient. This is about 90% energy efficient. Great idea. Some problems. Power density is always a problem. Scaling it to large sizes, that's becoming more and more. You know, you, you've got the Ford F-150 Lightning being built here in Michigan. Uh, I think it's in, yeah, being built here in Michigan. That's an example of scaling the size of these lithium-ion batteries even larger to run entire trucks. But cycling lifetime continues to be an issue. You want to be able to store for decades, so you have to be able to cycle these back and forth. As you cycle this back and forth, you get materials degradation. So that's an issue. Also, you're using lithium and cobalt, not the most environmentally friendly substances in the world, not the easiest to mine, and we don't have a lot of it in the United States. Most of cobalt actually comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, which is not a place that we want to be mining our resources from. Flow batteries are another uh, example um, that can be very energy efficient. They're much more readily scalable. They're probably at a lower technology readiness level, meaning they're not employed as universally as lithium-ion batteries for a variety of reasons. Um, there's a lot of current research going into efficiency, power density, cycling lifetime, and if you click again, I, I believe um, uh, Professor Kwabi is going to talk a little bit about flow batteries in addition to some other work uh, later in the talk. Uh, he's certainly one of the experts here at Michigan working in, in the flow battery uh, realm. Uh, so I'm not going to talk so much about that. But if you click again, but a different approach that we're really excited about in my lab isn't batteries. It isn't pumping water uphill, pumped hydro storage. It's storing energy in the form of chemical bonds. This idea that you can take renewable electricity and water and couple that with waste products like CO2. CO2 is an industrial waste product. You couple those together in a reactor to form fuels or chemical feed stuff, stocks. Things like methane or methanol. Things that you can directly use in a fuel cell or directly burn if you want to in a combustion engine and then recycle that CO2 constantly, combust it, capture it, convert it, combust it, capture it, convert it, etc. That's the idea. So we're going to store it in the form of chemical bonds. Um, the most common way of thinking about this is water electrolysis. This idea that you're going to use water and electricity you're going to couple those together, and you're going to split water into hydrogen gas and oxygen gas. So it's a chemical reaction taking electricity and separating water into its two constituent elements. Hydrogen, if you've heard of the hydrogen economy, hydrogen's a really good fuel source. It has some issues with storing it, and you know it's very light, it's hard to transport it but it's a very efficient fuel source, and it can be combusted directly or used directly in fuel cells uh, uh, for energy generation. So this is one example of a solar fuel, taking solar or wind electricity and converting it into a chemical fuel source. Um, what we work in my lab, next slide, is actually doing something a little more complicated, taking carbon dioxide and water, combining that with electricity, to generate methanol, where methanol can be used directly as a fuel source as well. 
the issue in all of these reactions, well, there are lots of issues, but the issue that we focus on, on making these reactions reality, is you need catalysts to do this reaction. And what a catalyst is, is it's a material or a molecule that accelerates reactions by helping break bonds and reform bonds. So it's something that helps us get across these energy barriers in these reactions by facilitating the cleavage of bonds, in the case of CO2, breaking carbon and oxygen bonds, and then reforming bonds, creating carbon-hydrogen uh, and hydrogen bonds to form hydrocarbons and fuels. So, next slide. So what we do in the McCrory Lab is we design new catalysts and materials specifically for the conversion of these wastes like carbon dioxide into useful chemicals and fuels. And, and that's a picture of some of my students in the lab. Some of them are present here uh, today as well. But um, yeah, so that's sort of what we do and how we approach chemistry in the McCrory Lab. Okay, we'll go straight to David Quabi's presentation. So this is a real privilege for me to, to be here and to talk a little bit about my research to you all. Um, I don't normally talk about my research to audiences like this, so this is really wonderful. Um, and you guys are, you know, your taxpayer money funds my work, so feel free to ask all the hard questions when the time comes. Um, so, so Charles did a really wonderful job talking about why we're interested in storing renewable electricity. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the work my group does in terms of designing devices that store lots of electricity really cheaply, and also devices that can capture CO2 from the environment, okay? So let's go to the next slide. So, so what I wanted to talk about, so I wanted to go back a little bit to, to, to this idea of pumped hydro um, and use it to motivate why we're interested in the sorts of devices we work on in my, in my group. So if you think about what a pumped hydro plant is, it, it sort of has three components, right? You have, a, you have a reservoir that's really high up, and then you have a reservoir that's really low, and you have a turbine in between them, the water flows downhill and you get electricity out. If you want to store electricity, you, 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 you can pump the water uphill and, and it's a really sort of simple system, really. Um, what makes this a really fantastic uh, way of storing energy is the fact that if you want to store more energy, so if you want to increase the amount of energy you store in your system, you just need a bigger reservoir and more water, essentially. Right? And it turns out that this is really cheap. Right? So the, the, the bigger your system is, essentially the cheaper your, your um, in dollars per unit of energy you're, you're storing, essentially. Right? Um, turbines are really cheap, or they're, and they're also really efficient, so we know how to make those and, and make them um, at the scale we need to store the electricity, or, or store lots of electricity, really. Right? So that's what pump hydro does for you. Um, it, the, the amount of energy that you store in a system is just equal to the amount of water you can store at the high elevation, and then also the distance between high and low, really. It's just a product of those two, all right? Now, we're very much inspired by this idea um, of decoupling the energy and power, um, and essentially, that's essentially what we do with flow batteries. So flow batteries are an electrochemical analog to a pumped hydro system, Instead of storing water at a high elevation, we're actually storing electrons or electricity um, on molecules that store uh, the electrons at either a high potential or a low potential. 
So in much the same way that you have a high elevation and low elevation reservoir, you have a, you have a tank, uh, if you look on the right, you have one tank that stores electrons at a high energy, and then another tank that stores electrons at a low energy. And then if you want to either deliver or store electricity, you pump that electrolyte or the, the fluid in the tank into a reactor, and that, that reactor is essentially equivalent to your turbine. Okay, so the analogy here then is that the height of the, the elevation difference in the pumped hydro translates to a voltage difference in your, in your flow cell. And then the, um, the amount of mass or the amount of water you're storing is going to translate to the number of molecules you can put in the tank, essentially, the concentration of the molecules you can put in there. So that, that's sort of how the two um, relate to each other. And the nice thing is that, if you wanna, again, if you want to store more energy, you just increase the size of your tank. And in principle, you can end up with a really cheap system if the molecules you put in the tank are cheap. Okay. So at the moment, people are really interested in um, using molecules based on vanadium. So vanadium, the Vs you see there on, on the right are just uh, shorthand for vanadium. If you don't know what vanadium is, that shouldn't be a, should, that's not, no surprise because it's a very alt element. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that exists in the Earth's crust in very low concentrations. And as a result, it's really expensive. Um, the vision that my group and a lot of groups around the world have is to replace these expensive elements with really cheap molecules. Okay, so that's what we work on in my group, thinking about really cheap molecules that can store energy in these flow batteries. And if, you go, if we go to the next slide, I have a few examples of the sorts of molecules that we're interested in working with. Um, the, what we're really excited about, about these molecules is that they are, in a sense, all around us. They're known quantities. So there's um, molecules that, that you can derive or that are found in things like broccoli uh, and rhubarb. In fact, in, I guess like five, 10 years ago, people, people called this the rhubarb battery because um, you know, these sorts of molecules exist in nature and plants and so on. Nobody's squeezing rhubarb and making batteries in my lab, but, but people, people make, that, make that connection. Um, there's um, uh, hydroquinone, which is a uh, sort of an acne treatment um, in, the, in the middle left panel there. And then the red and blue, those are molecules that are used in the food and textile industry as dyes. So about half of the molecules that are used as dyes in the food and textile industry look a little bit like the yellow, um, the yellow powder and the, the, the molecule right next to it that you see over there, okay? And then on the bottom right, the black stuff that you see in the person's hands, that's coal tar, which is a byproduct of, of refining or, or extracting coal, and we have a lot of coal tar. Turns out there's a chemical in that coal tar that you can actually make into or, or kind of convert um, into a molecule that can store energy in these flow batteries. So in principle, we could take a lot of the quote-unquote waste stuff from the fossil extraction business or industry and use that for renewable energy storage. So, so that prospect is really quite exciting to us. Um, so, so here's a picture of what, the, what our experiments look like in the lab. Um, on the left, you have a little reactor in the middle, and then you've got two, <laughs> we ha we, you know, I showed tanks in the, in the first slide, but these are just two little vials, right? It's all scaled down, so we can, we can do uh, some detailed investigations at lab scale. And you've got those two colored electrolytes that are kind of being pumped into the reactor and, and um, 
uh, being pumped from the reactor into the reservoir and back again. Okay. And uh, the really cool thing about these organic molecules is that sometimes they, they're, they're strongly colored and they often change color. So it's, it's fun for students to see all that happening as, they're, um, as the battery is being cycled. On the right, I'm showing a plot of uh, the capacity of some of the batteries that we work, in, we work on as a function of time. And essentially, with the, these curves are just represent two molecules. So one molecule, the one, in, the one with the black curve, we found has a really high rate of degradation. So if, when you see, line, if you see the, line, the slope go down, essentially that you, you're losing capacity as you charge and discharge your battery. And, and this is some work I was involved in uh, 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 several years ago. But what we did was we took that molecule and we, we made a really small change to its structure. And we saw that we go from losing 5% capacity per day to something like 5% capacity per year. Okay. So by making a really small tweak to the structure of the molecule, we found that you can make a really dramatic improvement in its lifetime. And we want these batteries to last a really long time. We want them to last for decades. And so 5% per day isn't going to cut it. You want to be losing on the order of maybe 5% per year, maybe even less than that. Okay. So, so this is the sort of research we work on um, for energy storage. And we're, in a sense, piggybacking um, we decided to sort of piggyback on the sort of flow cell architecture and start working on um, CO2 capture. So, uh, so Charles mentioned that we were, you know, 80% roughly of our energy use is coupled to CO2 emissions. Um, we need to get that number down quickly. And there's some concern that we might not be able to do so in time uh, to avoid many of the most disastrous effects of climate change. Um, and so people are really interested in uh, figuring out ways to capture CO2 from the environment, from the atmosphere, um, and so on. So, so we're interested in taking many of these molecules and, and using them for CO2 capture. And the way this works is that it turns out that many of the molecules we use in our flow batteries for storage, when you push an electron onto it, it naturally removes a proton or a hydrogen ion from water. And so it changes the pH of your solution. Um, and I'm showing an example of a reaction up there in the, in the, in the middle left portion of the slide. You can see that you're, you're going from left to right, you're moving a proton. You go from right to left, you, you dump a proton. What happens when you remove a proton from water is that it becomes alkaline, it becomes basic, and it can actually capture CO2. Uh, you can capture CO2 in, so in solution that way. Okay. So, so left to right, you capture CO2. Right to left, you can bubble out. You, you, you go the other way, you can bubble out CO2. You kind of Kind of what we're doing now with our, with our beer glasses. You're, you can, you, you're bubbling out the CO2 that's dissolved in there. Um, and in principle, you can release that CO2 and store it somewhere else. Okay. Um, we have been working on applying this sort of strategy to capturing CO2 from air. But it turns out that's really hard because the, the concentration of CO2 in air is very low. It's about one CO2 molecule for, 2500, for every 2,500 molecules of air. So that's, that, that's challenging. Um, what we've instead decided to do is to look at capturing CO2 from seawater. Because it turns out that about a quarter of the CO2 we pump into the atmosphere ends up in the ocean. And it actually ends up being more concentrated in the ocean. So you have about 100 times more CO2 per volume in the ocean than in the air. And so, so that's another application that we've, st we've started looking at quite seriously. 
Um, you, you can't dissolve organic molecules in the ocean. That's not, that's not okay. It's legal. Um, but what we've decided to do is take these molecules and actually stick them onto solid surfaces, essentially immobilize them, and then put that in, put that in seawater and try to change the pH of seawater to release, to release CO2 and then and store it uh, somewhere else. Okay. So, so on the, uh, the top shows an example of the, the sorts of uh, uh, substrates or um, materials we work with. Actually, uh, the, the, the white stuff you see there is actually wool felt, very much like the wool you would wear. Um, so you can take that wool felt and with some really fancy chemistry, and we have collaborators who help us do this, you can coat that wool felt with, with the molecule, with the molecule that does the proton storage, and you get the black stuff on the right. Um, you can see a very zoomed-in view of the, of the fibers of the felt. You, you can see that they're really well-coated with the molecule. Um, you get this nice film on top of it when you go through that all that fancy chemistry. We've, we've shown that you can use this. You can actually remove CO2 from seawater, um, and there's research ongoing towards demonstrating that you can do it for, uh, for very low cost. Okay, so um, this is a little bit of an introduction to my research. Um, we, we're doing a, a bunch of other things with... Um, showing that you can, in principle, use light as a way of driving CO2 out from seawater. And I have a postdoc here who you can talk to about that. Um, raise your hand, postdoc. There you go. So, so pester him if you want to learn more about, about that particular strategy. But um, moving forward, I just wanted to end with, you know, this question of what would implementation of these systems actually look like? Um, Charles mentioned flow batteries aren't, Everywhere now because they're you know they're very much need, they very much need a lot of research and fundamental um, understanding, but we can imagine what they might look like because there's some demonstration plants that are coming online in parts of uh, certain parts of the world. So, on the top left, that's a flow battery plant in Dalian, China, which is going to be rated for 800 megawatts. So, just to give you a sense of perspective, well, you can actually see how big it is from um, from everything around it. It's the order of like a city block or so. It's 800 megawatts. To give you a sense for what that number means, it's if you take just a standard coal plant and run it for an hour, that's all the energy you're probably going to get. Um, you know, that, this, this battery plant can store all that energy, just, just to give you a sense of perspective. And it's, it's really quite big. And by the way, those, those little black things you see on the roof there, those are solar panels. And so the goal is that the solar panels capture electricity and they, you store it in the flow battery farm, essentially, and then you can release that energy when when it's needed. There are various sorts of uh, visual representations of what other flow batteries installations might look like from Lockheed Martin. Um, I'm not going to comment too much on that, but you, you, can, you can take a look at that to get a sense for what your future might look like driving around the neighborhood uh, looking at flow batteries. And then with regard to, to CO2 capture and um, what we're going to do with the CO2, that's another question that uh, people often bring up and something we can certainly discuss in detail as we move along here at today's program. Um, one, one thing you could do is store it. Another thing you could do is give it to Charles so he could turn it at, into, a, at, into a fuel or, or some sort of chemical. Um, but there are lots of options and there's lots of uh, policy discussion and um, just a lot of thought that has to go into what, what we end up doing with it, which I'm, I'm happy to engage in discussion with, with you all about. So thank you for the opportunity to, to present my work here. Awesome. I'm so excited by the interesting questions and discussions that I heard as I walked around the room. This is a really compelling topic. 
Um, so this next part um, is a group discussion with a question. Okay, I'm going to go back here, and then you're up next. Thanks so much for this presentation. I really appreciate your sharing uh, your work that you're doing here. My question has to do with the concept of exploiting the work that humanity has already done with our land and our resources and the extent to which you see the existing landfills as an opportunity to mine for both of what you are working on. So to repeat the question, can existing landfills and other byproducts of our in industrial activity be mined for the kinds of things that you guys work on? <coughs> yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, so I, I tried to uh, address that a little bit when I mentioned coal tar as a potential uh, feedstock for molecules that, can, um, that you can, we can use to store energy in flow batteries. But in general, this is a question that many researchers consider in, in uh, setting about their work. So, you know, the question is, can you use or leverage commonly available feedstocks or uh, materials that are already present in everyday life for, for the technology that you want to um, build? Um, so to some extent, that's possible with flow batteries. It would depend on precisely the sort of molecule you want to make. If that molecule has a highly abundant um, sort of natural feedstock, then, then in principle you could do it. Um, but this is, I would say, a, a very live question and one that many people are considering. And the other thing I mentioned with regard to textiles is that, um, you know, the hope there is we can leverage all the sort of efficiency and um, economies of scale and sustainable practices that are developing in the textile industry. If we're making electrodes from those textiles, then, you know, we can translate that to, to what we do in energy research. So. Uh, maybe that's not a complete answer to your question, but it's one that many people do consider. And in some cases, it is possible to use, um, n you know, waste products as a way. Yeah, I, I would just add, in, in the realm of sort of catalysis, thinking about solar energy conversion to fuels, um, or even in intercalation batteries, a lot of the key components are metallic in nature, right? They're, they're copper, manganese, cobalt, um, different transition metals. Um, so yeah, we throw a lot of that away. A lot of that is our landfill. I think it's a cost issue. Is is there a financial benefit? When will there is there a financial benefit to mining that from landfills or societal benefit that can be translated into a financial benefit for mining it from landfills versus from mining it directly from mines in the ground? Um, I think, especially for things like lithium and cobalt, recycling of those have become very important because we know that our lithium and cobalt sources aren't um, probably very sustainable and aren't mined in very good ways. Um, and so, and from, from friendly countries. So we're, we're thinking about how to recycle and how to reuse existing uh, uh, waste in that way. Um, for other metals like copper, um, manganese, those are, or iron especially, those are much more abundant, so there's a little less of that. But as costs rise, I think that we'll think more and more about active recycling and trying to look through old sources and, and reuse them. Okay, next I think we had a question over here. Uh, hello, 
Can you hear me? Got it? Okay. Um, thanks again for your talk tonight. It's super timely um, given the IPCC report. We've talked about a little bit at our table. Um, I'll get to it. What do you, given the, that you just mentioned, Charles and David, the, the financial aspects or maybe the light, lack of financial <laughs> aspects of some of these technologies, the fact that some of these, you know, won't be profitable for some time. What do you think the likelihood is that the U.S. is going to get it together in a reasonable time frame that makes some of this stuff, you know, the rest of some of our lives reasonable? Sorry, I know it's not uplifting. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's always great to ask researchers what they think about politics. <laughs> so so, so I'll, I'll try to avoid politics on this, but um, I, I will say that I think the U.S. government has recognized that there's an issue with renewable, sustainable energy and climate change. I think that's a realization Department of Defense, Department of Energy, National Science Foundation, they all recognize this. Um, Department of Energy recently released Earth, what they call Earth Shots, which are these big themes of ongoing research. And one of them is sort of this idea of conversion and making, they, they talk about hydrogen, but it's, it's a broader sense of, of sort of making renewable fuels or you know, capturing CO2, somehow addressing the climate issue. National Science Foundation also has several centers that they're developing uh, along these realms. So, so I think it's something that the federal government has been interested in. Um, industries are starting to become more interested in as well. Um, many oil companies um, have research in renewables um, um, because they see it as an emerging market. Um, so it's all about sort of making sure that there's financial incentives, but I don't think it's possible without government support because it's not a short-term financial benefit and no one knows the time scale to making it uh, uh, a financial, uh, uh, a financially uh, uh, accessible technology. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that, but I, but I will say that I, um, I think it's important to take note of the fact that there's already quite a bit of momentum um, around these technologies and uh, easy to, I think it's easy to lose sight of that and the fact, you know, just from the IPCC reports and so on, it, it's a, it, there's a big problem with climate, um, sort of maintaining the climate at, at reasonable levels. But there's already a lot of momentum with renewable technology. Solar energy, uh, solar electricity is really, really cheap right now, as is wind. Um, and the, the cost is, is at par with fossil um, fuel uh, power or even, even lower in a lot of cases. And so there's a huge economic incentive for figuring out how we can solve the storage problem. And lots of really interesting ideas that are out there that, that people are, uh, are working on. And I, you know, I have this plant um, from, from Dalian, China. There are some in the US as well. So there's, there's flow battery companies that are, that are starting up um, here in this country. And you, know, you probably don't hear a lot about them because there's a lot of research going on and, and um, a lot of planning going on. But, but there's momentum, so it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> I, I will say thank you very much. I will say that when you were talking about the worst effects of climate change, I thought maybe you were talking about having to cancel science cafes. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but maybe not. Um, thanks for being here. Um, recently, there was a poll of even 
Democrats in the United States and way less than 10% felt that climate change was a major priority for our country. Um, and so what do you think that researchers and scientists like you and ordinary people like the rest of us, what can we do to increase the consciousness of the threat and the urgency of the situation, not only in terms of um, just the whole energy thing, but, but global population, and those things go hand in hand. Okay, well, uh, so, so I'll take the first part, and I'll, I'll let Charles take the second part about, about population. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I'll say, coming, I mean, I, I think events like this are, are wonderful because, like I said at the beginning of my presentation, this is taxpayer money driving the work we do. And in a sense, we are accountable to, <laughs> to you all for how we, we use that money. Um, I think events like this are, are a fantastic way to start. Um, I don't know all the research about exactly who is concerned about climate change and to what extent. My, my understanding has always been that people understand that this is, or at least for now, increasingly understand that this is a real issue. Um, and that we need to do you know, something about the way we, we, we've coupled our energy use to CO2 emissions. Um, I think the, the biggest set of questions come up, come up when we start thinking about what, to, what exactly to do given the many options that are on the table. Um, and that's the case for storing renewable energy, but it's very much the case if we want to think about carbon capture, which would touch us off a whole other set of, uh, opens up a whole other can of worms. And so I think in a nutshell, public exposure to and accountability in events like this and, and um, perhaps other events of this nature would, would go a long way to, to raising more awareness. But yeah, population growth? <laughs> I'll just say one more thing on, on what, what David was commenting on. I, I think that energy literacy and scientific literacy is definitely a place for improvement in the United States. I think that it is incumbent upon active scientists, uh, either in academia, also in industry, but to communicate more with the public so that there is more public awareness. I'll note that the University of Michigan Natural History Museum has a scientific science communications fellows program that actually trains graduate students and postdocs in effective scientific communication to the general public. So um, I know my lab has taken a lot advantage of that. Um, but I, I think that that has perhaps been forgotten for the past 10 years or so, and it's starting to become, scientists are becoming, starting to realize more and more how important it is to engage with the general non-scientific public um, in order to increase awareness and literacy about these issues. Um, the health community has done that to a large extent. They're very good at that. But the non-health science community has really struggled in that area. And I think that's really important. Um, in terms of um, you know the increasing all, all of the increasing need for energy, the increasing CO2, it's all tied to population growth, absolutely. Um, and population growth also increases land use, which leaves less land for things like solar arrays and wind wind farms. So um, because you need that arable land for um, for crop production uh, to feed growing populations, um, and so that's a real concern. Um, how do you produce energy where you can and store it or transmit it to where it's needed? And those two things are often not in the same location. And how do you do it cheaply enough 
that it's accessible to everyone and not just rich developed nations. Um, I think that that's a real challenge that's being struggled with. There's a lot of talk um, about distributed energy. I don't know how practical or impractical that is, but the idea of doing smaller scale energy production with local storage, so you don't have to have the capital investment of large plants. Um, there are issues with cost of those compared to larger plants. There's a reason everyone builds massive plants. They're cheaper to run than when you have distributed. Um, but I mean, I think that that's something that scientists and engineers are very conscious about, and there's a whole area of research in energy policy that focuses just on how to get energy where it's needed as populations grow and predicting those population growths and the energy distribution networks that are needed. Um, and some of that's happening at University of Michigan, some of it's happening in Department of Energy at National Labs, but there is research in exactly that because it's an incredibly important area of research. Thank you so much. That's really I'll just important. mention one more quick thing um, with regard to sort of drumming up excitement and awareness and so on. And that's, I think, if it's possible, and this is just my personal opinion, if it's possible to reframe this as a, an exciting challenge and not just as a burden <laughs> to be sort of shouldered and, and solved and managed, I think that could drum up a lot of excitement. In, in much the same way, perhaps, that the, the space race drummed up excitement for science back, you know, back in the day. If we can think of this as not just as a, something we need to solve to survive, which is, <laughs> it is the case, but also something that um, presents exciting opportunities for science and, and, and research, I think that, 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 that could go part of the way to, um, to helping people get involved. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Now, as far as alternate energy sources go, or since go, well, in order to guess off fossil fuels, one that I've always been an advocate for, but also probably one of the more controversial sources is nuclear energy or nuclear power. I'm curious to know where you two you guys stand on this as an alternate energy, energy source. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of a large portfolio of energy sources. I think that nuclear will probably play a role in that portfolio of emerging energy. Um, that's my guess. Um, I know that um, in Europe, in particular, nuclear energy has been a big part of their re energy portfolio, and they recycle nuclear waste much more efficiently and better than, the United, than, than we do in the United States right now. So I, I th my, my guess is that nuclear will be a part of it. But I don't think, given the cost of nuclear plants, how difficult they are to build and maintain, and where uranium is located, uh, mineable, usable uranium is located, I'm not sure that uranium power plants are going, they're gonna be a component, but we're not gonna be 100% nuclear country. I don't think that we possibly could be. So I think it's gonna be part of the portfolio, but it's not, it's not the only answer. I don't think there is one only answer. I think it's gonna be a broad distribution of energy sources just to meet the growing need in our country and then globally. Right. And uh, this, the second thing, regarding in nuclear energy, as you probably know, one of the biggest controversies is because of the radioactive waste it leaves behind. I, do you think it's possible that maybe we could turn that waste into some, into something into a fuel source of itself, kind of like uh, what you talked about with some of the alternates, what, what the sources you discussed? Um, yeah, so um, I, I agree with Charles, that that's why I didn't have to add anything. I, I think nuclear is going to be part of the solution as well. With regard to um, 
fuel efficiency and uh, potentially using, I, I know there's lots of, there's a nuclear engineer in the room who can correct me if I go wrong on the facts here, but there are other ways of using nuclear fuel beyond the sort of once through cycle that we, we currently deploy. So you, you, you get your uranium, you enrich it, it goes once through a, a, through a power plant and then you put it in a spent pool or sort of leave it out uh, wh wherever it is. There are ideas to use things like breeder reactors, for example, um, which essentially make more fuel as the nuclear plant goes along. So you, so you start with uranium-238, and then you, you, you actually make that, you enrich, you enrich your uranium-235, um, which is the fissile part, and then you can make more fuel as the, as the reactor operates. So you make plutonium, for example, which um, causes issues with proliferation, uh, proliferation because of nuclear weapons and so on. But in principle, you can extend the lifetime of your nuclear fuel by using a breeder reactor. Um, and in fact, the first breeder reactor in the States was in Michigan, actually. Um, Fermi 1, which had a, which had, there was a little accident, I think, in the, in the 70s. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but it was, but it was built, and it's, it's there, and, you know, in principle, maybe that these sorts of ideas could come back to the fore. Um, I asked sort of this question of you a little bit before, but the fl I'm, I'm really interested in this technology of the flow batteries and to talk a little bit more about the pros and cons of the development and how f close you are to actually implementing the technology in the United States. Okay, so um, so pros and cons of flow batteries. So the, the, the main pro is the, this decoupling of the energy and the power. So the fact that you... If you want to store more energy, you increase the size of your tank, you can increase the concentration of the molecules in there, and you don't have to increase the size of the reactor. So there's a cost advantage. Um, the, the, the con is now you have to think about what the molecule, you, know, you have to think about the molecule you put in there. And because you're storing the molecule in a solution, you, don't, you can't store as much energy in the same space as a typical um, lithium-ion battery. So, so these things are going to be large. <laughs> Um, I suppose is a con. So you have to start thinking about land use issues and so on and so forth. Um, that said, there's a variety of, of chemistries that people are playing with. Um, there's companies that are uh, starting to work on organic molecules and um, uh, metal organic complexes and, and various sorts of chemistries that I can talk in more detail about. I don't know how far away they are from practical implementation. A lot of this is just going to be driven by the economics and, and the price of these molecules, essentially. Um, so I'm personally optimistic that they're going to make a dent, uh, that they're going to play a role um, in, in, the, in the renewable, low-carbon energy future. But I can't put a, put a precise date to it, unfortunately. Ooh, hello. Um, I wanted to ask uh, regarding the, the flow batteries uh, in like when these molecules that we use, uh, like they lose their capacity, what is the current uh, standing on like, do we recycle these molecules? Like what is the, what do we do with these degradation products? It's a great question. So um, the, it, it depends on the time scale um, of, of this lost, of these of the formation of these degradation products. If, if this happens on a very, very long time scale and you're losing about 20% of the capacity over, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, then maybe it's not a big deal. 
it, in 20 or 30 years, maybe the project will, would have ended and you, you sort of recycle, you take, down the, take the whole thing apart. If you're losing capacity on a faster time scale, then you have to figure out, well, for one thing, it's probably not going to be economic <laughs> to, to, to actually set this up as a battery installation. But people are looking into ways to uh, essentially regenerate molecules that have decomposed um, using a variety of electrochemical and chemical strategies. Um, so so this, this sort of comes back to the point Charles made earlier about recycling. Um, it, that's, it's just going to be really important for us to figure out how not just to, how we build up these systems or how to sort of reuse their components and kind of keep going. So, yeah, good question. Before uh, we go to our last two questions, I want to just remind you that on your table there are little blue evaluation forms for you to suggest topics and give feedback about tonight's cafe. Um, NSF, which partially funds this cafe, uh, would love it if I had a really good feedback report for them with lots of data. So I encourage you to fill out the little forms. And there are little yellow pencils. Notice the maize and blue theme um, next to the little blue forms. Um, with that, I'm going to go to our second to last question. Um, and which is? Hi. You've both mentioned the use of um, waste products or byproducts from fossil fuel production being used as a feedstock. Um, are you concerned that this could be used to extend the lifetime of fossil fuel plants that might otherwise be shut down? Um, I don't think fossil fuel plants need an excuse to extend their lifetime. I think fossil fuels are going to be with us for a while. Um, I think that... Um, one of the things, um, so, so often when we talk about capture and conversion, we, we talk about CO2 at, or capture in general. We talk about CO2 coming from these wastes because that's where it's generated. Fossil fuel plants, but also industrial processes that use heat and energy and fossil fuels to do conversions. Um, I think that, um, sorry, I'm distracted a little bit. I, I think that... Um, I don't think that it's going to be used as an excuse to continue them. I think that we're going to continue burning fossil fuels. I mean, as you saw, the projections are well into after 2050, uh, even if it's a smaller percentage of our energy use. I think a good goal would be to maybe come up with renewable energy strategies that we're not building more fossil fuel plants uh, and that we can start turning on renewables instead of building more fossil fuels. Um, but obviously, the best idea would be to do direct air capture. We're taking CO2 just directly from the air, capturing it, concentrating it, and then either storing it long-term or converting it into something else. But that's a much lower technology readiness level than, than taking it from what we call flue gas, which is the output from a fossil fuel plant. Last question. Also from the McCrory lab. <laughs> So I was wondering what you think about the general efforts into scaling the, I guess, the lab scale um, efforts into CO or CO2 or, or general energy related things, and um, and kind of if there's, if you think there should be more funding and and or research into the steps along scaling along the way to get to these huge, um, maybe like a flow battery at the at the scale of the in China and stuff like that. So your question is specifically about carbon capture, right? I mean, just generally um, in energy research. research I mean, because yeah. be compared to our lab or like a research lab, and then going all the way right. to the to this kind of scale. Yes. So there, um, there are 
funny opportunity announcements um, precisely around this question is, you know, the, the goal would be, so you would read the announcement, it would be something like, demonstrate to us that you can capture 100 tons of CO2 in this amount of time, right? And um, calls like this come out every once in a while, and, you know, I would look at that and say, I, I can't do that with my, with my tiny little flow battery. So, so I think there's a lot of interest um, and recognition from the Department of Energy and other government agencies that we need research not just at the fundamental scale, but also um, along, the, along the pathway from, from, from fundamental R&D to, to practical implementation, and, and there's a lot of support for that. We have a lot of ground to cover very quickly, but um, at least from what I've seen so far, there's, there's recognition that we need, we need help along all these steps. Yeah, I think on the scaling issue, this is also a place where industrial partnerships play a, 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 can play an important role. Industrial uh, uh, chemical companies know how to scale processes. They have people that work in this area. And I think, you know, finding these uh, uh, academic and industrial collaborations is an important step that um, is used to some extent, but maybe underutilized in this area of trying to take things from a lab scale, from, from the two vials to a more commercially viable scale. Um, and those are also important because um, in industry, you know, things that sometimes you work on in the lab that we think are really interesting science or engineering problems, they, they've already solved that, or they say everything you're doing is too expensive, you know, think about it again. So, so I, I think having that sort of feedback is really crucial when you're thinking about taking something from a fundamental science to something that could actually be practically implemented. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. What a captivating talk.